this is the last week in our series, Brick and Mortar. Uh, it's a series where we've been exploring the foundations of our common faith and exploring uh, the things that are required to help us persevere in our faith. Uh, we started by looking at our foundation itself, Jesus Christ, and that we're called to build wisely upon him. And then we looked at how uh, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, acts as, a, as our mortar, so to speak, to seal us into our foundation. We looked at a brick of our foundation last, last week, Scripture, which is breathed out by God for uh, developing our righteousness and knowledge of salvation and to help us grow more and more into the image of Christ. Finally, this week, we're looking at the last brick in this series, certainly not the last part of our foundation, but we're looking at the church. Now, I've been saying this each week. We're doing this because the world that Jesus sends us out into isn't always an easy one. So often the pressures we face in the world can make us want to hide our faith or abandon our faith altogether. But I believe these pressures often overwhelm us because we lean towards living out our faith alone. We make our faith a personal matter. We don't like being you know, interdependent. We like being independent. And so we compartmentalize our faith and we don't want it spilling over into other parts of our lives, let alone making us more interdependent upon other believers. But as a result, it's easier to be overwhelmed by these pressures we face in our lives, these pressures that push down against us. And the truth is, we need the church if faith is going to survive in this world. We need the church if we're going to survive in the world Jesus sends us out into. And I know for some of you, you have this love-hate relationship with the church. It's beautiful and yet it's broken. And I just want to invite you uh, to lean into this and listen and, and journey with us on what it means to truly be the church. Uh, I can think of no greater place to go in the scriptures to, to learn about the church than the letter to the Ephesians. This entire letter is about what the church is in the hands of God. And uh, we'll be looking at two passages this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, and uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. Uh, and we don't usually jump between uh, two passages like this, but in Ephesians, it's necessary because throughout the whole letter, Paul's developing his theology of the church. Uh, and in these two key passages, we see the three primary ways of describing the church in the scriptures. It's the people of God, the temple of God, and the body of Christ. And each of these unique descriptions tells us something beautiful about what the church is. Not what we think the church should be, but what the church actually is in the hands of God. And when we come to understand what the church is, we'll also come to see that it is indeed impossible for us to grow more and more into the likeness of Christ without the church. So here's the big idea I want to explore this morning. God uses the church to build us up into the fullness of Christ. God uses the church to build us up into the fullness of Christ. So open your Bibles with me to Ephesians, starting in chapter 2 and, and verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Some movies, you know, they're so good that you can sit down midway and without knowing everything that's transpired, just get totally caught up into the unfolding story. Taken, you know, you can just sit in at any moment and you'll be taken along for the ride. Uh, Ephesians, it's that good. You know, we're jumping into the middle of it, and I wish we could sit down and read everything up until this point, but this is a book where anytime you, you jump into it, Paul is saying something profound. He's building layer upon layer about the beauty of the gospel and its implications for our lives. But we shouldn't skip it all, so let's press pause and catch everyone up really quick. Ephesians, it starts out with Paul reminding the church that God has blessed them with Every spiritual blessing available in the heavenly place. Not some of the blessings available, but everything. God has held nothing back. And so Paul, he's praying that the Ephesians would grow and grow and grow and deepen in this reality. And he prays that their hearts would be enlightened more and more by the gospel. And then enter Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of the most comprehensive and clear articulations of the gospel in the entire New Testament. Uh, Paul reminds them that even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, completely and utterly and uh, hopelessly dead, helpless to help ourselves, God in his great mercy and love for us, even while we were dead in our sins, sent Christ into the world to redeem us, to give us life, to save us. And Paul writes, you know, in, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a gift. But as Paul is articulating the gospel, he doesn't stop there. As we're reconciled vertically to God, it also takes expression horizontally among God's people. Uh, this is why in our service, when we confess our sins, we stand, we're reassured of God's pardon, we then immediately go into a welcome because the grace we receive from God is best expressed in the way we respond to one another. And so Paul, he says, look around the table, Ephesians. What do you see? And they would have seen an overwhelming diversity, Jews and Gentiles at one table. And they would learn that the gospel changes the way they relate to one another because the entry point is grace, not status, not purity, not moral flawlessness. The entry point is faith. Not our ethnicity or our performance. Which means the gospel makes divisions fall because no matter who we are or where we are, we come to God needing grace. That's the backstory. So to our passage, Paul's laid this all out. And he turns a corner and he declares in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is the church? What is the church? The first thing Paul says, it's the household of God. It's the people of God. And Paul, he begins with what we are not. We're not strangers. We're not unknown to God. We're not aliens. We're not foreigners. Uh, don't breeze past these knots because the implica implications are huge. Uh, we were once these things. We were once strangers. We were once unknown. We were once aliens. We were once foreigners to God, but no more. 
Not now. Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, because of the gift of grace, God knows you. God sees you. God welcomes you and he brings you into his family. And so Paul writes in verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are a citizen of the household of God. I want this to sink in for us because more often than not, uh, if, if you're born here, you take your citizenship for granted. I take my Canadian citizenship for granted all the time. I was born with it. I did nothing to earn it. I don't think about it except when traveling abroad, you know, and you, you run into someone who has a Canadian flag sewn on their backpack, and you're like, hey, I'm from Canada too. And they're like, oh, I'm from uh, America. Oh. <laughs> you know, because sometimes people want to ride on our country's reputation because they know of its benefits, its privileges, its status among the world. That's not a bad thing. I get it. Uh, but it's so easy, right, to forget that the, the rights and the privileges basic things like voting uh, that are entitled just because you're a, a citizen. This would not be the posture of those listening to Paul when he talks about citizenship. Citizenship in the ancient world, it was a big deal. In the Roman Empire, uh, citizenship was highly prized and it was only available to an ex exclusive class of people. And it, it granted many privileges and rights that uh, sound very familiar to what we have today. The right to get married, the right to own or sell property, uh, the right to vote or hold public office, uh, and certain rights within the judicial system uh, to appeal uh, a decision after a trial or to choose a local or uh, Roman trial. And for the select few, it meant that, by and large, the, the empire was behind you. If you were a citizen, uh, you were supported by the empire. The majority of people, on the other hand, knew what it was like to have no rights and privileges. They knew what it was like to be conquered and to have people reigning over them. They knew what it was like to be a second-class citizen or a third-class citizen or a fourth-class citizen or a slave. And so citizenship was something that people desired, but it wasn't easy to come by. You either had to be born into a Roman family. You could buy it, but it was very, very expensive. Or you could bribe an official and get your name on a list of people recommended for citizenship. Or if you were enslaved to Roman citizens, they could free you into full citizenship. But generally speaking, if you were not a citizen of Rome, the cards were stacked against you. And Paul, he, had, he writes these words, you're a fellow citizen of the household of God. This would have been shocking to them. He's, he's pulling into one of the deepest desires that people would have, these rights and privileges that they think Rome can provide to them. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you are a citizen of this eternal kingdom and everything in it has been made available to you. You have a prized possession, a status that sets you apart. And if you want to be really shocked by what Paul's saying, remember, he had just said, you were dead. You were dead. You were dead in sin. And, and elsewhere, he says, even while we were enemies, God loved us and made us citizens. God is handing out citizenship to his enemies. This is so countercultural. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It'd be hard for them to wrap their minds around. You know, Rome, they showed no pity to enemies. No pity. If you were defeated, you were 
publicly humiliated. You were captured, you were scourged, you were often tortured, and more often than not, you'd be led to be crucified. Enemies had no rights or privileges whatsoever in the empire. But Paul, he's declaring that God gives out citizenship to enemies, which means unlike Rome or modern citizenship, we're not born into the household of God. We can't buy our way into it, nor can we pull strings and weasel our way into it. We're more like the slaves who are freed into citizenship as a gracious gift. Now remember, citizenship is always defined by the country you're a citizen of. It's the laws and the documents that declare what it is and isn't. And so when Paul says that we're citizens of the household of God, it means that God determines the rights and the privileges of our citizenship. He determines what it looks like. And it starts with God handing out grace and the offer of citizenship even to his enemies. Now, this wasn't just countercultural in Rome. Uh, the National Post uh, recently ran this headline, Terrorists to be Canadian Again. Zachariah Amara led an Al-Qaeda-inspired plot to detonate bombs, storm the CBC and Parliament Hill, and behead then-PM Stephen Harper. The convicted terrorist had his Canadian citizenship revoked in 2015 and faced deportation to his native Jordan under a Tory law. Now, thanks to a liberal bill, he's getting it back. The underlying debate about this is, is citizenship a right or a privilege? Can, do you, once a Canadian, always a Canadian, or are there conditions in which it's appropriate to remove these rights from someone? It's a divisive issue, isn't it? Well, let's look to God's economy. Citizenship is not conditional. We didn't deserve it to begin with. We were enemies. We were dead. It's been a right and a privilege bestowed upon us because of the richness and the vastness of God's grace and mercy in the gospel. Now, I can't say how one doctrine of theology should inform a modern political issue because it's always more complex than that. But what I do know is in God's economy, we are all Zachariah Amara. Enemies embraced by God, forgiven by God, made citizens by God in his kingdom. The difference, here's the difference, is that God's citizenship transforms us, whereas no other citizenship has that ability. Even as a citizen of Canada, Amara is still considered an enemy of Canada. But those who have received God's citizenship are no longer enemies, but saints and members of his household. Because to become a citizen, you have to declare what you were. I wasn't. I was an enemy. I was, I was dead. I didn't even want you. You have to declare your need for grace. You have to repent. And so our citizenship in God's household, it's no ordinary citizenship. We are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And together we will inherit a promise about what will become. Look at verses uh, 20 and 21 again. The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What will the citizens of God's household become? 
a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God. You know, the citizenship stuff would have blown away the Gentiles' minds in Ephesus. But this temple stuff, it would have blown away the Jewish minds at Ephesus. The temple in ancient Judaism, it was the center of worship. It was the place where they believed God dwelt in a special way. You would go to the temple to make sacrifices for atonement. You would go to the temple to work on your relationship with God. It was where you could be made right with God. But the gospel, it deconstructs the temple. God never demanded a temple to begin with. His people wanted to build one for him. God has always wanted to dwell with his people and be with his people, and be among his people. He wanted us to be his home. But because of the fall, because of sin, that relationship was fractured. But in the gospel, it's reconciled. And Paul says we're being developed and made into the home of God. This means the church is never a building. The church is never a building. It's not a place or a space because God is fundamentally about his people. Buildings and spaces and places, they only serve to that end. You can't go to church. We say it all the time, I'm going to church. You can't do that. You are gathering as the church. That's why every week we try to say a few times in our service, thank you for bringing the church into this building. You are the church, the collective we Paul says Jesus is building the people of God into the temple of God. Jesus is building the people of God into the temple of God. But how? How is that possible? How do you join together such an eclectic group of people? Remember, Paul, he's writing uh, to Jews and Gentiles. And Gentiles was a, a catchphrase for every other ethnicity in the world other than Jewish. So you have a very diverse group of people with diverse cultural backgrounds and narratives. And Paul, he's already described this as the dividing wall of hostility in his his letter. It's not easily overcome. People groups clash. They don't always mix well. And on top of that, Paul, he's writing to um, people with freedom and to slaves. How do slave owners and slaves begin to exist together in the community of faith? Paul, he's writing to the extremely rich and the incredibly poor. How do they come together and exist together as a community of faith? You know, even if you look around this room, we're incredibly different. You know, we have different backgrounds, different amounts of money in our bank accounts, different interests. How do we begin to exist together? How could a group of people like this be built into the temple of God? Here's the thing, when you are a citizen of God's household. You come with your own background, and it's beautiful, and it's good. You join this unimaginably diverse group of people, but everyone obtains their citizenship the same way, grace. We are all being saved by grace through faith. That's the source of our unity. And when we become citizens of God's household, belonging to God becomes our primary identity. There's no such thing as a Chinese Christian or a Pakistani Christian or a Caucasian Christians. There are only Christians who are Chinese or Christians who are Pakistani or Christians who are Caucasian. Our faith in Jesus defines us first first, and then our ethnic heritages. 
In the same way, there's no such thing as a free Christian or a slave Christian or a rich Christian or a poor Christian. There are only Christians who are free and Christians who are slaves, Christians who are rich and Christians who are poor. Our faith in Jesus defines us first. And then our social statuses come into play. You see, it's not a love for diversity that holds our community together. It's not the good concept of multiculturalism. It's Jesus holding this whole structure together. It's not possible if he doesn't do the work. As Paul writes in verse 20, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Our existence then as the church is only possible because Jesus is actively at work growing and building us and knitting us together into the temple of God. And the promise is that the fullness of God, the fullness of God, all that God is, the fullness of God will ultimately dwell in us. That God will be with us. That his glory will be made known through us and that one day it'll spread across the earth like the seas cover the face of the earth. Now, this all sounds great in theory. It can preach, as we would say in seminary. But it's a lot harder when our feet touch back down on the ground and we have to put it into practice. You know, it's not so easy to knit, be knit together with people different than us. It's far easier to simply just exist on your own. It's easier to create a little ghetto of people similar to you. Um, <clears throat> Regent Trinity Western, not talking to you guys, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I'm in trouble after the service. Uh, or to remain, I love Regent and Trinity Western. Just, let's just erase that for the record. Dawn is staring me down right now. Uh, there is this temptation, right, to create uh, pockets, cliques of people who look the same as us and act the same as us and have the same interests as us, and we don't like to introduce people who look different than us. We have this tendency. Or to remain only on the edges, peripherally involved, you know, peripherally involved in a local expression of the church, but bouncing between churches or just going once in a while uh, just to check out what it has to say. God does not call us to this hyper-individualized faith. He does not call us to a, a whitewashed faith of unhealthy sameness. He doesn't uh, call us to a faith that settles for the bare minimum of involvement. But why? Why can't we just have a Jesus and me faith? Why can't we just have a clique of people who look the same and talk the same? Why do we have to give our full effort into a local church and that same church week after week? Here's the crux of the matter. Jesus does not take a hammer and a chisel and start working on you. He takes other people in his body as the hammer and chisel to start working on you. God's people are the tools God uses to refine his people. Yes, the Spirit is at work in each and every single one of our lives individually. I'm not denying that, but it's undeniably clear in the Scriptures that God primarily uses the church to build us up into the fullness of Christ. Jump forward with me a few chapters to Ephesians chapter 4. The letter, it's getting more and more practical. Uh, Paul, he's reminding the church that God's gift of grace is immeasurable. You know, it's given to us all. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't show partiality. But then Paul explains how that same grace 
takes unique expressions in our lives through different gifts that God gives out to his church. Look at verses 11 and 13 in chapter 4. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God laid our foundation. Was, sorry, Bible closed funny and I didn't even mean to do it. And uh, Stretch break, sorry, I'm just really tired. And uh, sometimes you just got to take a break and a breather. Ephesians chapter 4. God, he laid a foundation. The gospel of Jesus, our cornerstone. And Jesus, he gives the church gifts. And here, Paul, he starts with the gift of leadership. God gives the church a fivefold gift of leadership. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And all are still alive and active today. And we're aiming at having all five of these expressions of leadership on our own leadership team and in different avenues of the church. But each expression of leadership has one aim to equip the saints, to equip the people of God, to equip all of us. In other words, some members of the body of Christ focus on equipping the church to be the church, empowering the church, the saints, to take up the mantle of ministry within the, the local body of Christ and within the world. You see, it's not the leadership of the church doing the work of ministry. The leadership of the church empowers the church to do the collective work of ministry. Ministry is all of our jobs. It's not solely my job or Roger's job or our leadership team's job. It's on all of us. For example, in, in our 2016 survey, uh, there's quite a few comments about hospitality, and, and they, they always blow me away. It was the same last year, too. Uh, some people just stories of like, this is the most warm and welcoming community. I have never felt so embraced by ever this good job. Keep doing it. And then other people's experiences, like I walk in on Sunday, no one says hi to me. I try to talk to people. No one really receives me. And I go home and I'm starting to give up because it just seems like the coldest place on earth. Now, both are experiences held in this community. And the interesting thing, though, is people look to me, they look to Roger, and they say, fix it. Fix it. It's your problem, Alistair. Fix it. And I just say, I don't know how to fix it. I mean, I welcome people the best I can, but I can be a little cold and confrontational because I grew up on the West Coast. You know, like, <laughs> helpful response. But... All Roger and myself and other leaders in our community can do is equip the body to become the solution. If you want to see this community become more hospitable, guess what? Become more hospitable. That's the only solution. Now I can tell you books. We can write documents and blogs. We already have. We can preach on it. We did like, I don't know, a 12-week series on it. We can equip and equip and equip, but at the end of the day, your job is to do the work of ministry as much as it is mine. 
So as much as I need to be welcoming and push myself to be welcoming and to have eyes for people who are new and to try to make sure that we're not talking in circles but including people, it's on all of us. Because it's all of our work, the ministry of building up God's body. Because the church is the body of Christ. It's a body with many members, and each of us has a part. Each of us has something to contribute, which means we don't get to sit on the sidelines. It's not an option. It's an option sometimes, you know, if you're going through a season of grief or recovery, and you just need to chill. But don't think that you're not contributing to the church. We're called to weep with those who weep. You're teaching us something. You're contributing still in doing nothing and actually taking time to grieve well. But God has gifted each and every single one of us uniquely and specifically for building up the body of Christ. And the New Testament has a a variety of lists in different places, and uh, all of them are different, which means that these lists aren't exhaustive. They don't list every single gift that could ever exist from God. They're just a starting point. And so you might be wondering what what lists are actually in the scripture. And uh, here's a brief summary of all of them. Exhortation, generosity, mercy, Prophecy, service, administration, uh, discernment, faith, healings, knowledge, miracles, tongues, interpretation, wisdom, celibacy, hospitality, martyrdom, missionary, voluntary, poverty. These are the most common ones, and they're just a few. But whatever gift you may have on this list or not on this list, it has one common aim building up the body of Christ, helping us grow more and more in maturity and more and more like Christ. You know, you can look at that non-exhaustive list um, and say, yeah, like we want all of these things in our community. Like as much as we want the miraculous, like prophecy and tongues and interpretation and healings, like if you talk to me, I'm like, we need some more people gifted in administration. Like that is the gift our body needs, you know? We need some more people gifted in mercy and generosity. And yes, the miraculous, but we need all of these things and no single person, no single person in this room can have all of these gifts. It is not possible, which means we can't stay on the sidelines because each of us has something to contribute to building up the body to become more and more mature, more and more like Christ Jesus. And so if you want to start discerning what your gifts are, just ask someone. Ask your community group or ask someone who knows you well and say, what do you see me offering on a regular basis? Set up a meeting with myself or Roger or with one of our Stevens ministers. We'd love to walk through that with you. And uh, and tomorrow I'll also email uh, some other things you can do to take action. But here's the point. You cannot coast because all of us are called into ministry. Whatever your gift may be, you can't stand on the sidelines because we're worse off if you do. We need you. We need each other. You might feel like you don't have anything to offer or that you need to grow more yourself first, but these sort of qualifiers are found nowhere in Paul's thought. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, he's ready to use you wherever you may be in that faith journey. We all play a part in building each other up into maturity in the fullness of Christ. Paul concludes in verses 14 and 16. God does all of this. He gives us gifts so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you hear what Paul's saying? It's inconceivable to Paul that Christians would attempt to live out their faith on their own. You cannot thrive in isolation because you cannot grow into full maturity without others. Right now, Ansley, she loves to say this to us. I'll do it all by myself, just like that. And sometimes it goes okay. She can get her shoes on. uh, She can cut up her hot dog. uh, But sometimes it doesn't go so well. She makes a mess of things. She'll spill the milk or uh, knock over her potty. You know, like, if we act like children, if we say, like, I'm going to do this all by myself, we manage sometimes. But Paul says, left to our own, we will be tossed to and fro. We'll fall apart when the pressures hit us, when our faith is challenged. We'll compromise when we feel like we can go no further. The church is the body of Christ. Paul writes in verse 15 that we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. It stands to say then that we cannot become like Christ without his body, without the church. Because it's when every joint and part is working properly together that the body begins to grow and build itself up in love. Michael Ramsey, he was uh, an Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, He put this reality beautifully. He says, From the church, therefore, the Christian never escapes. It is a part of his own existence since it is a part of Christ himself. Without the church, the Christian does not grow since the, since the Christ is fulfilled in the totality of all his members. Jesus, he uses every single one of us. You don't get a pass. You don't get to do it alone. We give ourselves to one another in love. We speak the truth in love, but we don't just make the body healthier and healthier. We're not getting obsessed with toning our own muscles to look good. We have to introduce muscle confusion. Uh, we, We can't be static. The church is a dynamic, growing entity. How? Because we're not just building the body up in love, but we're adding more and more and more people to the body because Christ will not return until his work is finished. And that means there's still more people he wants added to his body. He is not done with this world yet. That's why he's given leaders in evangelism. That's why there's gifts of evangelism. That's why every single member, regardless of your gifting, is called to share your faith. But it takes commitment. Benefiting from the church in this way takes commitment. It's not always easy because sometimes it's downright hard. Real community can be scary. Truly experiencing the church doesn't happen by default. You have to stay in one place long enough for people to know you. And then when something goes wrong, you have to keep pressing in and empty yourself of all these expectations and desires you had of what that community would be and continue moving forward 
into the unknown together and learning how to bear with one another and love with one another and be patient and endure. Our community has learned this lesson the hard way. But good is coming from it too. You don't get to stay in the realm of pseudo-community for long in God's kingdom. He injects conflict. He injects tension. He does it so that we'll empty ourselves and fall to him so that he can bring us into a place of real community, real gospel community. It takes place with the people here, not the hypothetical people out there, not necessarily the other churches in our communities either, as good as they are and as much as we want to partner with the global church. Look around. These are the people God has called together to be this local church. These are the people God is growing into a holy temple so that the fullness of Christ might dwell in us. Do you see that? What makes it worth it then? The beauty of the church is how we form one another, not into the image we think we should have, but into the image of Christ. The beauty of the church is the head of the body, Christ himself, taking expression within us more and more and more. The church is no ordinary place. It was birthed out of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the people of God. It's the temple of God. It is the body of Christ. And in the church, God is working through all of us to make us more and more into the fullness of Christ. Without the church, it's just not possible. Because God loves the church and he's tending to her all the time. And because we need him, we also need 